Welcome to Hanging at the Hangar Bar. I'm Scott. I'm Candace. I'm Lariah. And I'm Lacey. Grab a drink and come hang with us at the Hangar Bar. Hey everybody, welcome back to Hanging at the Hangar Bar. This is Scott. I am actually hanging out at the bar alone today. We're going to do a couple different series that we're starting. We'll get into my solo series here in just a couple minutes, but Candace is going to be continuing her Travel Tips with Candace series next week, so look forward to that. It should be a good one. But before we get into my solo episode, let's remind everybody here that we have a our social medias, both Instagram and Facebook. Hanging at the Hangar Bar is the handle for those. We'd love to have you interact with us. We love it when you when you chat with us, when you give us your ideas for show concepts, that kind of thing. We'd love, love, love to hear from you. So keep that in mind. So solo episode today. This The idea behind my solo episode came from just sitting around having a conversation with Candace. We were watching TV, and I just looked at her and I said, when did Disney go public? Meaning, when did, their, when did they start selling stock? Because I had no idea. And I got to thinking about that, and I, I love to like learn little tips and tricks and little little things about the the company and dig a little bit deeper. So I, I played around with what to call the series. But after I started researching when did Disney go public, I figured out what I decided I was going to call this episode series. And we're going to call it Fallen Down the Rabbit Hole with Scott instead of Fallen Down the Rabbit Hole with Alice. Because what I found out was it was easy for me to go down the rabbit hole into digging into Disney history, digging into all the different things about the company itself. So we're just going to spend a little bit of time today going down a rabbit hole. And it all started with a question, when did Disney go public? So I know what you're thinking right now. I would be thinking the same thing. Why the heck don't you just type into Google, when did Google or when did Disney go public? Well, duh, I did that. Thanks for the applause. I appreciate it. Um, But there's more to the story of just the date when Disney went public. And I went down several rabbit holes that we're going to talk about over the next few minutes here. I have no idea how long this episode is going to be. I'm going to try and keep it to our normal 30 to 45 minutes because the other part of doing a solo episode for me is it's just a little different. I don't have a background in radio. I don't have any any experience of just talking and conversing and sharing information in the, in this kind of a way without some kind of a response. I do a little bit of public speaking and that kind of thing. But it generally is is not in this kind of a format. So bear with me. And again, our socials, give me your feedback. What do you think of this episode? Did you like it? Did you did you not like it? Well, I'll, I'll take all that feedback into continuing to build out this falling down the rabbit hole series. So here we go. First, first little bit of Disney trivia for you. If you didn't know, Disney, the current Disney company, started on October 16th, 1923. And until 1940, there were the same four owners, Walt, Lillian, Roy, and Edna. So between 1923 until 1940, there were the only four people. And we know why on some of that, because 
when Walt first went into business and he had his some of his older companies, he had a little rabbit or a little rabbit called Oswald that ended up getting stolen from him. That might be another rabbit hole we go down some other day, but there's movies about that. There's lots of different ways that you can find out about Oswald that, that got stolen from Walt. So Walt learned a little bit of a lesson there. He wanted to maintain ownership of everything. And so knowing that, that's when I started asking the question, so why did they go public? When you go public, you lose some of the ability to own your own, own your own, I, I guess is, an, is a good way to say that. So I just, I, I dug in, I said, okay, why did Disney start selling stock when I was going through my, my Google searches? And one of the things that I found out was that they were having some financial difficulty back in that 1940 range, which is odd because they were just coming off of Snow White, which was a fantastic success for them. I'm not going to get into all the dollars and figures and, and that kind of thing of how much that movie made and that, because if I were to go down all the different rabbit holes that I found, this episode would take four hours to do. But just know that Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was an amazingly popular movie, and it was so popular that Walt started expanding, decided we're going to build a new studio in Burbank, and in typical Walt fashion was dreaming big. He he started adding to staff. And as they were building that that building in Burbank, the new studio in Burbank, if you go and you find pictures, and I'll, I'll I may try and find pictures of this to put on the the Instagram and Facebook just so you can see it. Their their big studio building has all seven of the seven dwarfs, six of them across the middle, kind of holding up one roof line, and then you have Dopey all the way at the top. So the the seven big ones, I think I read somewhere that they weigh 30,000 pounds each. They didn't say about Dopey, but really the the idea, I love that because it's in architecture, it is showing that the Disney company is built on the backs of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which I, I such a fantastic detail. I just love that kind of a detail. And sidebar moment, like, that's what Disney is known for is that kind of detail. So when we do all of our talking about the parks, when we do all of our talking about the movies and some of those little things, and you hear people talk about little Easter eggs in the movies and all of those kind of things, that's been a Disney staple since the beginning of, of the company. And so like you look at the seven dwarves at the, the top of that building, that is completely intentional. And, and the idea behind company being built off the success of those seven dwarves is is just a really cool thing. So again, they were expanding their staff extremely quickly as they went through. And as I said, they started running out of money. They and having learned that lesson from from having Oswald stolen, Walt didn't want to give up control, but he came up on early in 1940, they released Pinocchio. That movie lost like, like, I think I, I read that it was a $2.7 million cost, and it only brought in like $2 million at the box office. So what we know as a classic Disney flick now kind of bombed at the box office. They knew they had Fantasia coming up fairly soon, too. And really, we'll, we'll get into that here in just a minute. But they didn't know if that was going to be successful, and they were running out of money. They were close to going broke, so they had to do something. So what they did was it, it was coming up on wartime and they said, okay, we're not going to do an IPO. We're just going to, we're going to sell shares over the counter. So this is where the, the first kind of major rabbit hole that I dug down in trying to find like the, the IPO or when they went public 
is they started selling stock in 1940 to raise cash. And depending on who you talk to and the sites that, that you go visit, you learn different things. Like one one site said they were selling 155,000 shares at, at $25. Another site said they sold 600,000 shares at $5. And I kept finding sites that said they raised $9 million. Some sites would say they raised four, some three. If you're doing the math, you can sort of see how that works out. So as I dug in a little bit deeper, what I found out is that they actually, there were 600,000 shares of common stock that they sold over the counter at $5 a share. And then they also listed 155,000 of preferred stock that they, they put out there. I'm not going to go into the differences between preferred and common stock and that kind of thing. Just know that they were issued at different values. So the the preferred shares were listed at 100 or at $25 a share, which brought in about 4 million. The 600,000 shares at $5 brought in another 4 or 5 million somewhere in there. Um and and so most of the articles that I read agreed that in that time frame when they started issuing stock, they made around 9 million dollars. They said, okay, that's plenty. They they were able to pay off some of their debts and that kind of thing. And it was only over the counter. So it wasn't trading on the stock exchange, that kind of thing. It, it was very illiquid stock at that point. So the other thing to keep in mind with that is that Walt owned somewhere in the neighborhood of like 30,000 of those shares. So he maintained uh, the biggest share of the, the ownership and that kind of thing. But it did make it to where he had a board of directors that he had to answer to. That will become, spoiler alert, that will become important here in just a little bit. So they were coming off of Pinocchio, and that wasn't a big success, like I said. It, they needed cash, so they, they raised that money, and then they released Fantasia later in that year. So their stock price, um, wait, before I get there, Fantasia wasn't very popular either. And part of the reason behind that is simply that I don't think audiences were ready for a show like Fantasia. It's such an interesting concept of a, a show of just basically long animated music videos where the characters are moving in time with the music and all of that kind of thing. Audiences in the the forties weren't really ready for that. And, and it showed, they didn't show up to the box office. And then Walt actually made the release of that movie cost even more because he insisted that any theater showing it would have a brand new Fantasia sound system put into it, which sounds incredible for the, the time. But can you imagine a theater saying, yeah, we'll show this 90 minute or 100 minute cartoon and put in a brand new sound system for it? Like, I, I can't even imagine the looks that he got from the theaters as he was insisting you can't play this Disney movie unless you put in this sound system. Just sort of a fantastic concept to me. So with the on the backs of Pinocchio not doing well, Fantasia not doing well, and it being wartime, there were there was a lot going on. Oh, I almost forgot to mention. See, where I have these moments where I have to go back in time. So the night the year is 1940. $5 means a lot. $25 means even more in in the time frame. They didn't know how much stock they were going to to be able to sell. Disney sold out of all of those 600 share 600,000 shares of common stock in a single day. 
they completely undervalued the the value of Disney at that point, which they didn't go from what I was reading. They didn't go in and talk about valuation with any experts. They just some of the the owners and some of the people were sitting around talking about we need cash. What do we need to do? Let's offer six hundred thousand shares at five dollars each, and we'll raise the cash that we need. So they sort of backed into a number instead of sitting down and valuing what the company was actually worth at that time. I just thought that was completely. It just blows my mind that in nineteen forty, a company that honestly is struggling, their box office isn't doing well. Disneyland is not even a, a figment of imagination yet. They're, they're all about animated movies. They're not even really into live action movies that much yet. All of these things are going against them. And people still bought out all that stock in a single day. Just completely amazing to me that they were able to do that. Okay, so now let me get back to where I was. So after Fantasia and after Pinocchio really had rough goes of it, the stock price a year after it was issued had gone from um, had gone down to four dollars a share a year later. So it had raised up. the The cost went up and all of those kind of things. And but but a year later, it was down to four dollars a share. And here's another sort of interesting thing that as I was going down rabbit holes looking for all about when did Disney go public, I that sale of stock plus the rough time that they were going through leading to more debt at the time actually led to the animator strike in 1941-42, right about the time that Dumbo was getting ready to release, the animators all went on a strike. And it was because a lot of that was because of the way that Walt treated workers so differently you had your senior animators that had been with him forever that were making bank at the time they were allowed into the executive facilities they were they they heck they had a um they they had a personal trainer who was an ex-swedish olympian but then you look at the the ladies that were doing all of the the color artwork and new new um animators and that kind of thing they they didn't get paid for crap. They didn't really get much of anything and were just always looking up and in, into all of these people that Walt liked that were were getting all of these perks. And as you can imagine, like we're we're feeling that in today's environment. I'm not going to go all all political in this, but we feel that in our environment today that we feel like those at the top are kind of out of touch with those um at, at those at the bottom like the the distance between the amount that somebody a ceo makes to the the frontline worker is just an astronomical difference and people were feeling that even as as early as like the early 1940s middle of the war we were seeing that so walt wanted more more loyalty he was ticked he was pissed off that people were talking about striking he had even this was before there were rules and laws about this kind of thing he even fired a couple people who were talking about unionizing so he was doing everything he could because he wanted loyalty he wanted a family Dis walt always saw the disney company as a big family to the point of everybody he met don't call me mr disney call me walt we're all a family you wouldn't you wouldn't call your uncle Mr. Disney, you'd call him Walt. So it, he always wanted that kind of a family and it kind of crushed him a little bit that he he couldn't he wasn't getting that. And ultimately those animators went on strike which 
yeah, again, I'm not going to go political, whether you think unions are good, unions are bad, striking is good, striking is bad. I'm just sort of historically speaking, that's where we're at. So one of the things that um, happened, so just an interesting quick story here that, and I, I'm, prob- I'm going to try and get all the details right, but one, a couple things that happened while they were on strike. So we'll get into how the strike ended in just a minute. Cause again, we started with when did Walt Disney company go public to now we're talking about the animator strike in the early forties. So really what, what I, the couple of quick stories there, they, they were all out on the picket line holding their signs. Walt, you did this Walt Walt Disney's at fault, all of those kind of things. Um, cool rhyming signs that were out there. There were a couple of his senior animators that actually crossed the picket line. And, and when they, when all the folks that weren't crossing the line were, were shouting them down and that kind of thing had that explanation of, look, Dumbo's out there. If, if we don't, if I don't cross this line, Dumbo will never get made. And, it's too good of a show, too good of a story to not tell that story. I just thought that was interesting that, that there was some of that loyalty, but the loyalty wasn't necessarily to Walt. It was to their art and to their craft. And, and he said, I have to cross this line because if I don't, this will never happen. Just a a really cool story. Then the second story that sort of says how high the tensions were at the time There was one of his VPs of animation, his name was Art Babbitt, was one of the first ones to go on strike and and sort of be pro-union for the Animators Guild. And so, again, rabbit hole of a rabbit hole. Disney was the only or one of the only studios at that time that was not a union shop yet. So Walt had all of that loyalty that he wanted, but because he didn't take when he raised that $9 million, none of that really got returned to the, the frontline worker. They, they, they went on strike to sort of try and get better working conditions. So Art Babbitt was one of the, the folks that went across um, the, or went on, on strike. And apparently, the, as the story goes, at one point, Walt was driving down the road with the windows down and Art Babbitt shouted something about, all this is your fault, Walt. You can end this right now. Something along those lines. Walt had his driver stop the car, got out, and charged Art Babbitt. And from all the, the different things that I read about this, like they had to be physically separated. Walt was so mad that, that he actually was reduced to fisticuffs as, as part of this, this strike that was happening. So as you can imagine, Walt was was pretty despondent during all of this. He was mad. He didn't know what he was going to do. His company was really struggling still, so they were back in debt even though they'd raised 9 million dollars from from the public. All of those kind of things were weighing in his mind, and all of this is happening when the war was going on as well, World War II. So Walt actually took the opportunity, was offered an opportunity to go to South America for a 10-week trip to do some research for some war films that they were making. And the two flicks that came out of that were, um, oh, now I'm going to have to find it, The Three Caballeros and Saludos Amigos were the two stories that came ultimately out of that trip with with Walt. So um, during that 10-week trip, though, Roy actually 
met with the animators guild the animators guild the mediators sort of sided with the guild and roy basically gave the animators everything that they wanted while walt was out of town so as you can imagine that didn't make walt very happy either so it it really that's when disney became a union shop is in that 1941 42 range at the end of that strike when roy ended it by basically giving in to all the demands of the employees i just thought that was was really interesting Walt was completely disenfranchised by the the whole thing at that point. So when he got back from South America, he'd kind of lost his passion a little bit and he was mad at all the people. It, it's, it really is kind of interesting because again, not to go too political, Disney's been in the news a lot lately for some political things, whether it be copyright law, whether it be their Reedy Creek improvement district at Walt Disney world, whether it be, um, there was one other thing that they had kind of been in the news about, um, no fly zone over Disney World. Some, so they're kind of in the midst of the the political landscape. Oh, and the, the other big one that kind of started all of the other things was the, um, the don't say gay bill in, in Florida that – so Disney company is still very political. And one of the things that I see on social media a lot is folks saying Disney should just shut up and stay out of politics. Well, I'll tell you, Disney has always been kind of in the forefront of politics from making wartime movies to, to try and hype people up and clear down to after this, um, after this strike and after it was resolved and people were back to work, Walt actually became very political and he became almost like he he is what people would probably call like at the time like far right at that time what just completely interesting the people who had gone out on strike he called them um communists he called it part of the red wave all of those kind of things um and and he maintained that for years and years and years. So it's just interesting that that company from the beginning has kind of been very politically aligned. And, and while their politics may be shifted a little different and maybe look a little different now, they are still, they, they've always kind of been that uh, a political company. So now we're mid forties, we're still making more movies and, and that kind of thing. And Animation is changing so rapidly at this point in time. Like, for example, Candace and I were watching, if you don't know, if you go on HBO, they have all the old Looney Tunes cartoons all the ways, all the way back from like 1930 something to most of the recent Looney Tunes cartoons as well. So Candace and I were just kicking back just the other night and we were, we were looking at, at all of those cartoons and we watched some of the early 1931s where the the fox looked an awful lot like Mickey Mouse. Um, it, it was kind of fun to just sort of sit back and and watch some of those things. But it, it, my point is that when you watch the animation style change from 1930 through like 1943, 1945, you wouldn't believe that it was the same artists. You wouldn't believe that it was the same companies. The the technology jump between when animated motion pictures and animated cartoons first started being released in the silent movie era clear up to then in when Mickey is released and, and, um, Donald and, and, 
um, Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny and all those characters in the 40s when they're really hitting their stride, you think about how well animated those are and how crystal clear those are compared to those things that were done in the 30, like Steamboat Willie or the the first Fox, um, the, I can't even remember the name of the, the seven-minute cartoon that we watched that had a fox that looked just like Mickey Mouse, but that animation is so rough around the edges because of the way they had to do it. So with that jump in animation style and that jump in technology comes price. So Walt needed more and more money to keep up. So he, obviously the company is still, they're, they're making money. They've had some more good, good movies in there. And so we're still kind of living in that late forties era, really building the case for why they needed the IPO, why they needed to go public. We're in that time frame, also though here. So here's if, if Candace were here, we do a, a Disney trivia with Candace moment. I'd have her, her do this. But one of the things that it was during this time when Walt was trying to get things kind of back on track, get some successful movies and, and that kind of thing. Um, he wanted to, he felt like he needed to go back and get in touch with his Marceline roots. So this is apropos coming off of our Marceline trip and our, our road trip series. He wanted to get back in touch with his roots. So he set out to make Song of the South. So for any of you that know that movie, you know that it's hard to find today because it's really racially insensitive. And one of the things that I found out as I was doing my, my research for this episode, he had actually, Walt had gone out and asked for feedback from some African-American um, folks so it wouldn't be culturally inappropriate. So they told him, they gave him lots of what even today would be really good advice if you didn't know it. So they said, um, yeah, make this movie. It's a good story. It's we, we think what you're doing is is the right answer. But don't do things like showing slaves out in the field happily singing songs. And it, that's going to be something that's going to be culturally inappropriate. It's not going to be it's not going to show up well. So Walt took all of that in and then promptly ignored it clear down to the fact that in song of the south one of the scenes in that movie is slaves in the fields happily singing work songs and it it for those that that don't know that movie song of the south is the only disney movie that is permanently locked in the vault it's the only movie that has never had a dvd release I and I personally have never seen the movie. It was one of those that it once it was put out there, like I even looked at a list of of Walt Disney movies and like that was released in 1946 or 47. It's not even listed on a list of released films for the Walt Disney Animation Studios. And I didn't really go looking that deeply cuz I know I, I think that one was all cartoon, but somebody correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I think that was all cartoon so it should be on that list. Um, but I've never seen it. And I, all I know is that it, it is highly regarded as one of the most culturally insensitive movies out there. And really sort of that and that sort of cemented Wald as people sort of saying, hey, he's a racist guy. I, I honestly, I don't think that's true. Um, it, as I've looked at other things and, and the company that he's built and that kind of thing, I don't necessarily think that's true. I think no more racist than anybody else from Missouri and Illinois would have been in the 1940s and 50s. So by today's standards, probably yes. But I, I think um, everything that I've read is is 
he wouldn't be called what I, I would call today a classic racist. So, but that sort of followed him and dogged him along with sort of that whole after the strike calling people communists that were striking, those kind of things kind of stuck with him for the rest of his career. And he honestly had to work hard to overcome that to sort of be the beloved icon that we know today. So just a, a couple of, of interesting things. Now we're getting closer to when they actually offered the the stock to the public and, and did the initial public offering for the stock. So we're, I only have like three or four more, more bullet points before I get there. Um, so one of the things that Walt was doing was he was starting to think about making Disneyland. So this, we've now jumped ahead to the, the 19 early 1950s and Walt is wanting to build Disneyland. So he goes to his board of directors and says, I want to build Disneyland. I'm, I'm sure the conversation was much bigger and much deeper than that, but the board was like, no, that's dumb. Why would you do that? And Partially, if I were on the board, I probably would have agreed with them that Walt, the Disney company at that point, was only making like $720,000 a year profit on like $760 million in revenue. So again, those those financial terms are, they're, they're making less than 10% profit, which is, is not great for a movie theater. So they are really a struggling company. Walt believed so much in Disneyland that he went out and started another company. Um, that was separate from all of the stock that he had purchased. That is the the company called Wed Enterprises, W-E-D, Walter Elias Enterprises. Part of that then became Disney Imagineering. When it was a, eventually brought into the overall Disney family, that it was renamed Disney Imagineering. But a piece of that went on to become a little family company called Retlaw, Um because And he did that because the board wouldn't let him build Disneyland. And so how he funded that was he borrowed from his life insurance policy, took the max amount that he could out of that, $50,000. $50, he sold his second house to, to take all the money from that. I, I couldn't find how much he sold that second house for, but in that time frame, Walt Disney probably was was making bank let's let's just say a couple hundred 300 grand something like that for that house so he's looking at three hundred and fifty thousand dollars he also took the time to go out and put his first home in Lillian's name only just in case the adventure failed he didn't want it he wanted to make it that much harder to get the for him to lose his house if wed enterprises went bankrupt so we kind of know that um Wet Enterprises ended up being a good deal. But again, another another kind of rabbit hole that I went down with, with this is I thought that was really interesting that he went out and started a new company. And one I read an article about the the original stock and, and the IPO. And one of the things that they said is Walt funneled money to himself through Wed Enterprises in a way that Roy absolutely despised. And I was like, wait, what? How can that be? They, they were working together. They, they kind of put everything to, together. But what it turns out that he was doing is <laughs> Walt so much didn't like being like having the company be public so he couldn't do what he wanted. He had to ask people permission and he absolutely hated that. One of the things that he started doing was he would have things be owned by Wed Enterprises and then license it back to the Walt, what is now the Walt Disney company, or I think at the time it was Disney, Walt Disney Productions. 
would have to license things back to from wet enterprises so he owned the the monorail at disneyland he owned and the the monorail may have been after his death but the company was still there so a lot of the things that he did i'm trying to find in this article just really quickly um, yeah, Walt's brother and co-founder Roy strongly opposed Walt's creation of the company and thought it was a crooked, selfish move designed to drain the coffers of the main business. Basically, Walt Disney set up Wed Enterprises and gifted shares of it to his heirs. For example, it shows a couple of stock certificates. But Walt then transferred Wed Inter- to Wed Enterprises a collection of assets and rights, including but not limited to the rights to his name and likeness. So if Walt Disney Enterprises wanted to continue using Walt Disney Enterprises, it needed to pay WED Enterprises. Interesting little thing. You want to use my name? You have to use my name. You have to pay me for it. Um, Ownership of certain Disneyland rides and attractions, such as the railroad, the monorail, the streetcars, the viewliner, all those things were all owned by WED and licensed back to Disney, Walt Disney Productions. Uh, the licensing rights to merchandise sold by the public um, that entitled him to 5 to 10% of all revenue on items sold, such as stuffed animals, toys. Um, he had the television rights to the show Zorro in Wed Enterprises, and then the right to invest up to 15% of cost of mood- movies produced by Walt Disney so that his family could keep the money without sharing it with the Walt Disney production stockholders. So just interesting stuff from this article that I was reading that was actually by... Um, it's on a blog by Joshua Kinnan. It looks like it's a little older article from June 2013. So uh, it's a little bit o- older article by Joshua Kinnan on thoughts on business, politics, and life. It's an interesting blog. I, I dug into it a little bit. He said in there that Walt had his entire estate and will set up so tight that folks couldn't really get out of it. Like, like, he set his family up for life with this. And I, I just thought it was interesting that Roy was like, you're, you're taken from the stockholders. This, this isn't the right thing to do. There's, there's better ways that you can set your family up that are, are more clear to your stockholders about what you're doing. So they, he makes the point that Walt wasn't just this happy-go-lucky animator that was, was just out there drawing cartoons and didn't know how to make money and didn't know how to run a business. Walt knew what he was doing. He surrounded himself with people that set things up the way he wanted them to be set up. I just, just fascinating to me. Again, that Walt Wed Enterprises became Disney Imagineering. Disney Imagineering became Retlaw. Retlaw is now, um, and think about Retlaw, Walter backwards. It, it all sort of stuck together. But those, it, that company, Retlaw, is now basically they they've boiled it down to where basically the only thing that they still own is um, the Walt Disney Family Museum out in San Francisco. There's a lot of lot more detail I could go into there. Again, there's a lot of different rabbit holes you can go down, and and that's what I'm going to love about this series. It's I'm just going to start with a simple question, and I'm going to see where it goes. So I I may dig into this a little bit more in the future, like the financials and and that kind of thing. That Disneyland has been built. That brings us to 1957. I still 
I, I think it was just a need. I, I never did kind of figure out why they needed to go with an IPO other than they just needed to raise money. The same reason any business needs to. They they had movies coming out. They had parks to run. They are a park to run. They, they had things they wanted to do, and the only way to do that was with money. So that brings us back to or brings us up to November 12th of 1957, which is when their IPO was. So that initial public offering of stock for you and I to be able to exchange on the the internet today, or yeah, I guess on the internet, but on the stock exchange, um, they were offering it at at a par value of $13.88 a share. And so I just did a little bit of math on that um, just to see if you had bought stock back in 1957 at that IPO, what would it be worth today? So there's there's a few articles on that, so you can you can check my math on this. But I'll tell you what it does not include is it does not include any of the reinvestment of dividends. It doesn't invest. It doesn't consider um, the dividends that were paid at all. It just simply includes if you had bought stock and you had held that stock for whatever happened to that stock throughout the course of of the years. Here's how much you would have. So. Over the years, since uh, 1957 when it went public, Disney has split their stock one, two, three, four, six times. So if you had bought 1,000 shares on November 12th, 1957, on October 26th, 1967, so 10 years later, you would have had a two-for-one split, so your 1,000 shares would have become 2,000. On February 4th, 1971, there was another two-to-one split, so your 2,000 shares would have become 4,000 shares. Then a year later, well, close to two years later, it's another two-for-one split. Your 4,000 shares would have become 8,000 shares. Then about 15 years after that, Disney in the mid-80s does a four-for-one split, so your 8,000 shares would have become 32,000 shares. Then in the early 90s, they did another four for one split. So your 32,000 shares would have become 128,000 shares. So June 19th, 1998, they did a three for one split that would have taken you from 128,000 shares to 384,000 shares. And that's the last stock split that they did. So if you had spent $13,800 plus commission on November 12th, 1957 and bought a thousand shares, you'd be sitting on 384,000 thousand shares of Disney stock today. So I just did a little bit of math based on when I happened to look, the stock price was around $106 a share. So I just did a a little bit of math and those 384,000 shares would have been, would be worth $41,088,000. Your third, and again, that does not include any of the dividends that they paid. It doesn't include investing, reinvesting any of those dividends. You would be rolling in it. I would love to find somebody that that bought a thousand shares back in the 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 fifties and see what kind of life they're living today. I that's in the neighborhood of like a Warren Buffett kind of investment return where you just all of a sudden you're you're rolling in bank. $41 million for that investment. Just fantastic return on investment for, for that company. That's where we're at. We're, we're getting ready to wrap this one up. And so that is the answer to when did Disney go public? 
Thanks for going down this rabbit hole with me. I appreciate you all. Tune in next week for Candace's Trip Planning with Candace series. Again, we're going to be hanging out at the bar solo for a couple days and or, or a couple weeks, and then we'll see you as a group real soon. Have a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. Tomorrow.